Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now. Today, I am joined by Wendy Alsup. She is a theologian and an author, and unbeknownst to her, she has sort of mentored me from afar as I have poured over the books that she has written over the last several years and just really appreciated her desire to make theology accessible to women in the church. So, Wendy, welcome to All Things. Thank you, Jen. I'm so glad to be here. Can you start out by just letting everybody know where it is that you write and what you love to write about? I um, write from our family farm in South Carolina. I lived in Seattle for about 13 years, but then moved back here in 2015. And um, it's my grandparents' farm, the farm that my mom was raised on. And so it was a nice place for me to land. And it's a very it's a, a calming place to write from. Although now I have a full-time job at the community college. I direct our math department. So my writing from the calmness of the farm is, is not what it used to be. <laughs> I imagine you are a busy lady with um, work at the college there and writing. You're a prolific writer, um, blogging and articles, as well as um, multiple books. And you have two teenage sons. So your days are full. Yes, they are. (laughs) What prompted you to start writing about theology for women specifically? And I'm thinking of, I think the first book I read by you was Practical Theology for Women, and I really appreciated it. So what prompted that in you, Wendy? Well, it was um, in the early years of my own marriage, I started to sit under a pastor who preached the doctrines of grace and the reformed faith. And I had not heard it before. And so it really rocked my world to see the Bible as more than a series of moral lessons and, Mm. and begin to see it um, as a coherent story from beginning to end. And it was there that I was first introduced to concepts of theology And this was in um, the late 90s, early 2000s. And at that point, there was not much at all being written toward women about theology. And so as I wanted to learn more, it seemed like my options were to read male authors. And I found I did not really resonate with their books per se. Um, and I think it's okay to say that sometimes women, I, 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 I wanted things and more accessible. Like I didn't want to have to go get my doctorate in theology Mm -hmm. to understand some of these books. And, and that's where I wrestled. Like, really, do I have to, you know, people would encourage me to go to graduate school for theology, but I didn't have the time, money, or interest in spending that time. And so I I just wondered, is that, do you really, in order to to know theology, do I have to go get a seminary degree? And um, that's when I really started wrestling with, is theology just the stuff that happens in seminary written by men with doctorates or Is it really just the study of God? And if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom 
and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, then shouldn't that be a little more accessible? And so my burden early on was just, as I learned it, and maybe it's some of the math teacher in, in me too, where math tends to get taught by people with doctorates in math and maybe who never struggled to understand math and they use big words and fast concepts and don't necessarily know how to not dumb it down, but just break it down. And I wanted to do that with theology too, you know, like, do we have to use the word soteriology? Is it okay? <laughs> like, does, does, do you have to be able to speak like that in order to really understand the doctrine of salvation? Or does the doctrine of the perspicuity of scripture, which you don't actually even need to know that word to know mm. that the doctrines of scripture is supposed to be accessible to the common man. I mean, it's a very Catholic viewpoint that um, the deep things of the word are saved for the educated um, elite in the church. That's, that's not what the reformation was supposed to give us. And so that's, those were the barriers I wanted to break down. I was, I was trying to break them down for myself. And then it just, it worked out that I could also maybe contribute some to it being broken down for others. Yeah. I love how you said not to dumb it down, but to break it down. And um, I just appreciate that about your writing because that is what you do. You draw the reader into these really deep and mysterious truths found in the word of God, but in a way that the reader can understand um, and I think it's really helpful to say this is something I want to be accessible specifically to women. I mean, obviously nothing wrong with writing for men and women. I know that you do that as well. Um, but just acknowledging that women and men often in our specific cultural context have different roles and spending their time in different ways. And seminary is not necessarily an option for the female who wants to know theology and teach it in her local church or just to know it for her own sake or to teach it to her family. So it's a service to the church. And I'm so glad that you started writing when you did. Thank you. Um, Let's talk about one of your books, Is the Bible Good for Women? This is a book that's on my desk as we speak, and it's one that I have. The edges are frayed and the corners are dog-eared because I've turned to the book so many times. Um, and that is because I have been in women's ministry now for over 20 years. And I get this question, the title of your book, this question all the time, Is the Bible Good for Women? Or a variation of it, Is Christianity Good for Women? Is God good for women? Does Jesus care about women? Um, That is something that comes up regularly. And I feel like even women who've been Christians for a long time wonder if we don't have a skeleton in our closet and we're just sort of trying to uh, keep the door closed and keep him hidden. (laughs) So how do you answer that question, Wendy, when women pose it to you? What do you you respond with? Well, I think you know, the way I tried to deal with it in the the book was, yeah, yeah, the Bible is good for women. But the Bible has not been accurately taught in a lot of circles or accurately applied. And so really what we need is biblical literacy. Um, and then, and that's how you get to the point where you're like, oh yeah, okay. Now this makes more sense to me. We need, uh, understanding of the long story of scripture. So when we try to take out, 
things out of their longer context and use them either as bludgeoning tools or what have you without the context of the large story of scripture of Jesus, we're, we're setting people up for failure. Um, you know, if someone comes to me with a question, my challenge to, to them is, are they willing to not receive an easy, fast answer, but to fight for the, the longer right answer? Hmm. Um, you know, because I, it's, it happens in, in math that the most powerful problems, you know, where you really start to see the value of the math You've had to engage for a while and you've had to build on ideas. You know, people like just feel like math is not worthwhile because they can't resolve it. You know, it's not mm-hmm. the simple problems that are the profound answers where it really helps unlock some natural truth. And but you get into the higher maths and you start to unlock the power of it. And so what my challenge to women is, are you, let's wrestle through it. So let's, mm-hmm. let's go to this. Let's look at the context. Let's try to understand the larger story of scripture, because there are many individual nuggets you can pull out. Numbers five, Deuteronomy 22, you know, Hagar's story in Genesis. There are a lot of nuggets that you could pull out out of context of the larger story of scripture and all they look like are bad, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but they are in a larger context written by a God whose purposes transcend our lives and, and, and the heart of our faith is we do believe there's something more. So, you know, like I I talked, I think a lot about Dinah's story where it just really Mm -hmm. ends badly just ends badly in Deuteronomy. But my faith says that Dinah as a, a, a child of Israel is, has an eternity with God, the father. And, and so I, I really believe that when I get to heaven and I see Dinah face to face, I'm Dinah is not going to be bitter about how her story played out on earth because She's a part of a bigger story. And and I just think that that eternal perspective of God's long story, what was he doing and what's the story he's building and what are the individual parts we play in this story and how does Jesus's coming in the gospel suddenly give us perspective on every bad story, mm-hmm. be it about men or women or children or our, our foreign nations, it gives us perspective for us to put it in the context we need to believe that God is good. Yeah, that's really good. I think I appreciate your reminder and exhortation to do the hard work. We are just an increasingly soundbite-driven culture, and we just want the quick answer and the quick fix. But you're right, to to understand the character of God and His heart for women, his heart for humans and history in general, we do have to do some hard work. And um, I love how in the book, Is the Bible Good for Women? You really, you take us through a Jesus-centered understanding of scripture and you really put Christ at the center and you look through the Old Testament and the New Testament and help us just apply the gospel 
to our own lives as women. And um, it's a very encouraging book, but you're right. Hard work is required. We can't shy back, shy away from that hard work. Well, and you know, um, I got a little pushback when I was writing the book because I spent some time at the beginning kind of laying out the long story of scripture. Mm-hmm. And the fear was, but what if the reader can't persevere through that? What if they lose interest on that front end? But my response was, but it's necessary. You know, you can't mm-hmm. get to the back end of resolutions without this front end context of the long story of, of scripture. So I, I don't have an easy out for people, but mm-hmm. if we're willing to wrestle there, there's some good outcomes to be seen, some really beautiful things to be seen. Yeah. And I think we're seeing, as you said, back in the late nineties, early two thousands. And that's also when I first began in women's ministry, there really was not much out there, but I do see um, just more and more resources and a greater desire amongst women to have that biblical literacy. So there's a lot to celebrate in terms of the progress that's been made over the last 20 years. Yeah, I really think there is that in my early days, you know, there was, I, there were no resources. I think Amy Bird wrote housewife theologian along um, mm. around the same time that practical theology for women came out. And Carolyn Custis James wrote when life and beliefs collide. And I think those were the only things that seemed to be addressing women at anything beyond a surface level um, low-key study, Bible study, or feel-good book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just want to encourage the younger listener to grab hold of these resources and recognize that there's a wealth available now that hasn't always been there and to take advantage of what's out there now. It's so, so good. Well, one question I wanted to ask you about, you know, I'm the mother of four daughters. And so in our household, constantly we're talking about, um, you know, women and God's design for women and how females are distinct from males. And it's a conversation that's just ongoing and one, um, that I want to get right (laughs) so badly. Um, but can you talk with us a little bit, Wendy, about the creation of Eve, God's design for women in general, you know, what do you see in Genesis one and two? that most women, even women in the church, are not really thinking about or not aware of. Help us have that conversation about Eve and creation and womanhood. Well, I think it's there are multiple levels to it, multiple angles to, to look at it, because you have both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And so there's the Bible literally gives us two angles. Mm-hmm to the creation story of man and woman. And in chapter one, it emphasizes um, their, their over the, their oneness, their unity, Mm -hmm. you know, male and female were made in the image of God. And what's the image of God? Well, right there, he's a community that is creating. So he's creating this world, but he doesn't finish everything. You know, by the end of creation, it's all good, but there are still no, I mean, as far as we know, there's no music lyrics written. As far as we know, nothing's been built in terms of a boat or a house or a tent or, you know, 
there are no wines, right? You've got the raw materials, you've got mm-hmm. the cows, but you don't have the cheese. You've got the grapes, mm-hmm. you don't yet have the wine. So you've got all the raw materials, but he gives them this creation mandate. Now go and you continue this work of creating. So you go steward the the, the raw materials I've given you and you sow the seeds and you reap and you continue this good work. And so in chapter one, you've got this vision of the man and woman together going out and continuing this creative work that God did, bringing it out and um, domesticating out from that core place where, where they've started. And then in chapter two, you have more of this, the diversity, this, um, so the woman in particular then was created as this azer. And I just always think it's so important to understand that this azer word translated helper is used most often in the Old Testament of God. So mm-hmm. it's like 16 times God is called the azer. And he and there's so there's something particular about how God comes alongside of us in aid, the strong help he gives us that the woman in particular was created to bring to the man in this co um, co, um, you know, vocation that they've been given to go and subdue the world, you know, so. I think the I think the way it presents the creation story, so the the unity is in chapter one, and then what the woman in particular brings and reflection of the character of God is in chapter two. Give us a beautiful vision of what's possible in God's good plan. And even though we we didn't have much time at all to see in perfection this plan as it should be. We see echoes of it um, in in scripture going forward. And Mm. I I love to meditate on it, as I said, on the farm, because I feel like my farm kind of reminds me a little bit, you know, what was Eden like? Mm. Um, And and what what is this going out and stewarding the land and moving forward? And then the woman as a particular strong helper to this end. It's um. You know, you can't uh, boil it down to 10 exact steps, but to me, it's a vision that whets my appetite for standing up, being strong, and and helping my community move forward. Yeah, that is so good. I Anytime um, the idea of Eve being created helper, Azer, comes up in my Bible studies, I find that the majority of the women are absolutely floored by this and just don't know <laughs> that they're, right. that this exists in, in the creation story and that there is a unique design for Eve. And as you say, that Azer is a word used of God repeatedly in the Old Testament. And it's such a gift to, right. to receive. And I, I wish women would, I wish little girls were learning this from the earliest of ages. Yeah. Um, and that it was just common knowledge. So, well, flowing from Genesis 1 to 2 into 3, um, I know that this might be on the margins of what some listeners are aware of, but I think it's really helpful, especially 
those of us who routinely read the ESV, um, help us understand, Wendy, a sort of recent controversy that surrounds Genesis 3.16 and how it is translated. Can you give us just that high-level introduction to what's going on in this verse and why it matters how it's translated? Yeah. So traditionally, um, it's been translated Genesis uh, 3.16, which is after the fall, as, as God turns towards Satan. He curses Satan after the fall, and then he turns toward the man and the woman, and he doesn't curse them, but he describes the, the outcome of their sin or the consequences. And to the woman, mm-hmm. he says, your desire will be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And in like the late 70s, early 80s, a a lady named Susan Foe first um, suggested that this should be translated, your desire will be against your husband. And um, some groups, some conservative groups, Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood kind of embraced it. And eventually that became um, kind of a talking point um, for some complementarians, some some patriarchal uh, groups, that the woman's desire after the fall will be against her husband to uh, control him or to um, battle with him. Like she's going to ha- have this inherent desire based on the consequences of the fall to take control from her husband. So eventually the ESV just a few years ago changed the translation in the Genesis 3:16 to your desire will be against your husband. Well, the problem is that the word that was traditionally translated to, so you have desire and then you also have this, um, smaller word that's translated to or toward. So it's used like a thousand times in the Old Testament. It basically means terminal direction. So it's the end point of the activity. Mm-hmm. So you would say, um, we're going to the river. The river is where we're going to mm-hmm. end our going. You know, once we get to mm-hmm. the river, that's the end point. That's the terminal location. And the, And it's not ever translated against in the Old Testament, but it could be in the sense of like a ladder against a tree. Well, the tree Mm -hmm. is the terminal endpoint of where that ladder is going to go. Never in the history of the word in the Old Testament is it used with an animosity, you know, a... um, a fighting type or or aggressive type of conflict. It's not used with a conflict. It's a term of terminal direction. So for them to translate your desire will be against your husband, only against if you're thinking of like your desire is leaning on your husband. But your desire have a terminal direction that ends at your husband. So we're going to say your desire is toward your husband. Your desire is to your husband. That's the accurate way to say it because the husband is the object of the desire. That is simply Mm -hmm. what it means in the Hebrew. 
But um, I believe that folks wanted a way to um, uh, talk about feminism, third wave feminism that was creeping into the culture. And, and, and so I think people projected onto women. Feminism mm-hmm. is a desire of women to take control from the man. And so therefore, and here it is encapsulated in the, and this is just what, you know, God said mm-hmm. would happen in the fall of man, except it's not what he said would happen. He said, your desire will, you know, the man's going to rule over you and yet you're still going to want him. Mm-hmm. And so this really doesn't reflect at all our concerns with feminism in the ter- the traditional sense. And, and it's a very unfortunate mistranslation because what it ends up doing is creating inherent suspicion of women. I mean, I've, I've, I've ran into it a lot and even started wondering if it was true about myself. Do I want control from the men in my life? I didn't really, you know, but if you ask a question or seem at all not going with the just nodding your head with the flow you can get accused of, well, and I was at times accused of, of wanting control or being a manipulator. And I'm like, you don't do I? I don't really think I want to be in control. I just like really think I just disagree. So can Mm -hmm. I disagree without the thought being that I want to take control of the church? No, actually I don't want to be an elder in the church. I didn't want to be a pastor of the church. No, I don't want to be the leader in my home. I just want to ask a, I just have a disagreement. And um, so I think if we can remove that inherent um, suspicion against women, then you can get to the point where you can actually deal with what's really happening, what's really going on in hearts. This is so, I mean, it's something that I have, you know, been reading about and trying to understand better for the last couple of years. It is something that just comes up though in, in conversation with women, if we are, um, in the word or studying the word, inevitably this comes up. And so the ramifications really are so far reaching. And I appreciate what you said that, you know, it sort of inspires suspicion unnecessarily. Um, and so getting this right feels really important because if it's true that in Genesis chapter two, we see that we are created to be helpers. Um, then if there is this immediate suspicion of us as helpers, we cannot then really carry out God's design and calling on our lives to do that helping. So it's really frustrating. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I know there's a lot more to say about that, but we'll, we'll leave it at that. And I just appreciate you enlightening um, Genesis three sixteen for us. Well, let's change gears a little bit. Your most recent book is called I forgive you finding peace and moving forward when life really hurts. And I'm in the middle of reading it right now and really thankful for this particular work. Um, It just feels really timely for the church right now. So Wendy, what prompted you to write this book? Well, my pastor had um, recently gone through a sermon series on the life of Joseph and it was so well done. And, and he really helped me see in Joseph even more than I had seen previously. And um, so between, you know, for folks who've listened to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, you know, between that, 
um, situation and then my own divorce, I felt like I had some experience with it and I was burdened that we need to we need to really be saturated in what the Bible actually says about forgiveness because we mm-hmm. seem at times to have two divergent, equally problematic responses and one's is what not an easy believism, but an easy forgiveness, which actually seems to require, um, particularly among those who have been wounded or harmed in a relationship, uh, reconciliation maybe before um, is appropriate or before what the Bible would actually say you need to be reconciled. And and they they conflate forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness and reconciliation mm-hmm. are actually two different things. Um, and then there's another group that probably because of the conflation of forgiveness and reconciliation would reject forgiveness thinking that it's because they're re- they're re- rejecting a forced reconciliation with someone who's not repentant. But forgiveness, again, is separate from reconciliation, and we're not really given a whole lot of leeway when it comes to forgiveness. So it is something we have to face head on, whether we think things are in place or, or not, for a true reconciliation. Yeah, I think that differentiation is really helpful. Um, I know even in my own life, that's been something that, you know, we've wrestled with over the last few years, because there has been a lot of division and conflict inside the church. So what does it look like to be forgiving? Um, and to do that over and over, as you say, we're not given a lot of leeway there, but then what does it look like to be reconciled? And is it always appropriate to be reconciled? Not necessarily. Right. So it's just an area where we don't have a lot of, um, I think knowledge and wisdom and practice, honestly, probably the practice is, is really limited as well. Well, I was just going to say, that's why Joseph's story is particularly worth a deep dive into because there's this moment um, toward the end where Judah, who is the one who threw Joseph into the pit, becomes the one who actually gets in between Joseph and Benjamin when Joseph threatens to take Benjamin. Mm. And that's the... That's the moment in my mind where, like, you finally see, oh, Judah has changed. Mm. Judah has fundamentally changed. Judah has repented. Judah now, instead of being the one who throws the brother away, is now the one who is going to give his own life so the brother can go free. Mm-hmm. And and I, and Joseph clearly had a, a stance of forgiveness toward his brothers from very early on, but that's when reconciliation. That it's after that that Joseph finally revealed himself to his brothers, mm-hmm. because that it was that kind of repentance that marked the fundamental change that allowed true reconciliation to become possible. So, I love their story because. There's just some really deep, profound moments in it that kind of illustrate the difference in just plain old forgiveness and a, and a true reconciliation. 
Wendy, how would you instruct or encourage somebody in the church right now who, um, who is not reconciled to other members of the body? Maybe there is church hurt or legitimate spiritual abuse. What is, how did you move forward, you know, with, with the fall of Mars Hill? How did, and in your own divorce, I mean, what are those steps? What do those steps look like in terms of beginning to forgive? I think that similar to whether the Bible is or is not good for women, we have to center ourselves in the longer story. Mm. So, you know, in the end, I really think what equipped Joseph to navigate things is we think of him, you know, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And we think of it being the good of rescuing his family from starvation. But there's this other moment at the very end of Joseph's life that gives even greater perspective. And and Joseph makes them all promise him he's about to die. And he says, take my bones with you when you go back home, when you go to the promised land. And Joseph knew he was a part of something even bigger than his lifespan. So he lived his life obediently, but he knew he was a part of a bigger story, that there was more going on. And when you center yourself in a larger story, I mean, it it is Jesus's forgiveness on the cross that is the thing that equips us to forgive. Hmm. But I really believe we have to pray for God to open our eyes to the longer story and our willingness to submit to our place in his longer story and that we would really wrestle head on with what his forgiveness of us meant. So often we are able, we excuse our own mistakes Because we understand the motivations, you know, we understand the pressures we were under. We can, we can excuse our sin because we understand the pressures we were under when we sinned, Mm -hmm. but we don't do it for others, right? We don't see their sin that same way because we're not experiencing the pressures that they were under, the temptations they were under at the time. But the cross reminds us that we are, are all sinners, And so that really is fundamentally the mentality we have to wrestle through to get back to a willingness to even engage in the idea of forgiveness. And then, you know, the second thing is that forgiveness calls us back to seeing the humanity of the perpetrator. And I would submit that, you know, when people are victimized or harmed or in a culture that that wants to stand up for someone who has been harmed, it's good and right. To, and we, we, we rehumanize, right? We want to put human dignity on the one who had their dignity lost. But we don't understand the value of also putting human dignity back on the one who did the wrong. And not as an excuse of their sin, but as a call to act in light of what it means to be 
a human being in the image of God. So when we um, move our heart toward considering forgiveness and wrestling through forgiveness, we are wrestling both with our relationship with God, his forgiveness of us, and our relationship with the rest of humanity. Like at what point does a perpetrator become inhuman? Never. Never. Mm. We are always calling them back to image reflection of God, uh, to their humanity. That's what it means to be human is you are made in the image of God. And I think often of Dylan Roof, who killed the nine Mm. um, churchgoers in um, Charleston and the efforts that his family, their families went through to call Dylan Roof back to humanity. Yeah. And that's what their forgiveness did. It called him back to own what he did. You know, he didn't treat with humanity those that he killed, but we don't rehumanize his victims by dehumanizing him. Mm, that's good. And that's that's a trap we get into. Like we think we are rehumanizing those who have been harmed by dehumanizing the one who harmed them. And it doesn't, it doesn't work out that way. Yeah. Thank you. That is really helpful. And um, just knowing, hearing your testimony, I think provokes us to consider where we have withheld forgiveness. And so I appreciate you spurring us on with your example and just your willingness to talk about it um, publicly so that we might be encouraged to, um, be gospel centered, remember the cross, remember how we've been forgiven. And as you say, remember that the perpetrator is human also. That's a really good word. Well, Wendy, I hate to cut this conversation off because I feel like I could go on for hours asking you more questions, but where can people find you? What's the best place for them to go learn more about what you've written? Um, at theologyforwomen.org. That's my website. And um, I haven't had much time to blog lately, but it has a lot of my older writings. And um, then I'm on Twitter at Wendy also. So come over and see me there. I'll be at the Gospel Coalition this summer um, and doing some sessions on shame and single motherhood and ambiguous loss. So some good suffering type things that I hope will be helpful to women as well. Yes, those will be great. And I will also be at TGCW, so I will see you there. And those sessions sound excellent. Um, So thank you, Wendy. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a blessing. Thank you, Jen. And to everybody else, thank you for listening to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. So we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now.